Hello, Finding Humanity listeners. We have some exciting news to share. Our podcast has just been nominated for the 2022 Webby Awards. The show that you've been supporting since we launched in 2020 has been singled out as one of the five best podcasts in the world for public service and activism. But we need your help. The Webby People's Voice Award winners are chosen by listeners like you. Take a minute to vote for Finding Humanity at webbyawards.com. The link is in our show notes and show description. Voting closes on April 21st. Thank you so much for your support. I was basically operating a law firm from my prison cell. But it was all for people that couldn't afford a good lawyer and didn't have any other recourse. And so I was not the best lawyer because I was not a lawyer, but I was the best that they could get at the time. That is Sean Hopwood, an associate professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Sean spent over a decade in federal prison for committing violent crimes. While in prison, he became known as the jailhouse lawyer as he helped other incarcerated people with their legal cases. By the end of my time in prison, I had at any one point 10 to 20 cases ongoing. And I quickly realized the American criminal justice system, so much of it is arbitrary and randomness. Who gets punished harshly and who does not? Who has a good lawyer? Who does not? Who has a prosecutor that's a little less punitive than the next prosecutor? And same with the judge. Even if two people commit the exact same crime, they can get vastly different sentences based on other individual actors or based on what their appearance is and how they present to people. And then once someone goes to prison, we take them and put them in a place where most of the time it's going to make them worse off, not better. And then we release them after we have destroyed any community they have. Their social skills have deteriorated and they have no job skills and we kick them out to the outside world and expect a miracle to happen. And when it doesn't and they commit a new crime, we say, we'll see you were evil always to begin with. When most of the people I saw in prison were not evil. They were just people that made bad choices, and most of them just needed some help. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical human rights and social justice issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. And together, to help create a better world. Sean is from a small town in rural Nebraska. He had a pretty typical Midwestern upbringing. His dad managed a cattle feed yard and his parents helped found a church. I grew up in a sprawling metropolis of 2,500 people in a community that was all white. And I grew up in a farming community where there were cornfields as far as the eye could see in every direction from my town. Most things in life centered around sports. And so I played sports in high school and, you know, most people, that's what they followed and that's what they paid attention to. I was a solid C student in high school. I did not like school. I just could not focus on school at all and didn't like school, never took a book home and didn't really try. And that's what would drive my parents really crazy. It was when my teachers would say, you know, Sean's really smart, but he just doesn't try. And so, you know, I was very much an underachiever all throughout my childhood and 
going into college. Sean managed to get an athletic scholarship for college, but he was kicked out for not going to class. He then joined the U.S. Navy and was stationed at the Persian Gulf. But during his time there, he became sick with acute pancreatitis. So two years after leaving home, he went back. He moved into his parents' basement and worked 12-hour shifts on a cattle farm shoveling manure. One day, a year after Sean's return, a friend called him and asked him to meet at a bar. And I went down to the bar and over a beer, he said, you know, what do you think about going to rob a bank? And there should have been several answers to that question that would have been the right answer. But in my immature mind, this seemed like a way for me to get out of not living with my parents and to get out from under the debt I was in and just had no idea what I wanted to do with life and really had no purpose. And so when he proposed this really stupid idea, 21-year-old Sean thought that that was a good idea. In 1997, Sean and his friend bought a handgun and a rifle at Walmart. They stole a car from a church parking lot and drove to a bank in a nearby town. There, they pulled out their guns and left with $50,000. Later that day, Sean's friend regretted the robbery and suggested that they return the money with a note. But Sean refused. He instead teamed up with another friend and went on to rob four more banks. I was in a desperate place. I was in a state of depression and was living with my parents and living a life that I hated and felt like I had nothing to lose, combined with, you know, had no money and thought that, you know, if I got some money, I could get a job and get on my feet and that this would be the solution to all my problems, which, of course, all it did was take me further down that spiral. In fact, you know, people, I think, think that drugs and alcohol were one of the reasons that caused me to rob the bank, but that's not actually true. I didn't start the drinking and using drugs until after the first bank to forget about the bad thing I had done. And so, you know, most of it was just fueled by recklessness and foolishness and me and another person that was going through the same things kind of egging each other on. Sean and his friends were eventually caught after someone that they had told about the robberies snitched. Sean admitted to all his crimes and begged the judge to forgive him. He promised he'd turn his life around, but the judge was not convinced. He said uh, Hopwood was a punk, all mouth and nothing else. He couldn't back up what he was saying. And he said, I would bet all the farm and all the animals that he would not make a productive citizen. Sean was sentenced to 12 years and three months in prison followed by three years of supervised release. Like Sean, many people in the United States serve long sentences for crimes they commit when they were young. Although the level of crime is comparable to those in other industrialized nations, the United States has an incarceration rate five times higher than most of the other countries in the world. The United States currently has over 2.1 million prisoners, incarcerating 716 people for every 100,000 residents. The beginning of mass incarceration in the country can be traced back to the 1970s after an uptick in crime. And that's partly attributable to the fact that there was just a larger population that was young, and it's generally young people who commit crime. And so that was just sort of the nature of our society at that time. 
That's Nazgul Ghantnoush, Senior Research Analyst at The Sentencing Project. The Sentencing Project is a research and advocacy center working to minimize imprisonment in the United States and to address racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Dr. Ghantnoush told me that the uptick in crime resulted in politicians pushing increasingly punitive policies. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. Nixon started this trend, declaring a war on drugs and justifying it with speeches about being tough on crime. But mass incarceration truly exploded after the administration of President Ronald Reagan. By 1988, after his two terms in office, the prison population almost doubled. I think we would have come up with better solutions to that crime problem if it were not for the fact of racial divisions in our country. You know, the reliance on policing and um, heavy criminal penalties was partly motivated because it was a backlash to the civil rights movement and to the protests that were happening in the 1960s and 1970s. So arrest rates started to go up, prison admissions started to go up, sentence lengths started to increase. Now, why didn't they instead try to get to the roots of crime in the first place? Why didn't they instead try to invest in rehabilitation and drug prevention programs? It has to do partly with the resistance in the United States to really effectively invest in communities and low-income communities and to address problems of inequality. And racial bias plays a really major role in making elected officials who are largely white and encouraging white voters to support punitive responses to crime instead of supporting policies that help to uproot crime and prevent it from happening in the first place. In the mid-1990s, crime rates started to go down, but incarceration rates in the United States continued to go up. This is despite the fact that increased incarceration rates have no significant effect on violent crimes. At best, some studies conclude that the rise of incarceration may have produced about a quarter of the decline of crime that has occurred since the 1990s. Other studies have found this effect to be as low as 5%. For example, a report by the Vera Institute for Justice found that in 2000, the United States spent roughly $33 billion on incarceration for roughly the same amount of public safety it achieved in 1975 with $7.4 billion. Some believe that part of the reason why incarceration in the United States does not result in less crime is because prisons are not designed to rehabilitate people. What was the hardest part of being in prison? Uh, I think everything. I mean, the fact that you're away from your community and everyone you love, it's not like you have a lot of role models to look up to. You're with a bunch of people that probably are, have the same issues you have. And then on top of it, you know, your life is controlled in every single way. When you're living in a place where there's the ever-present threat of violence, it causes trauma. And, uh, you know, it's no surprise that most people who do a long prison sentence come out of prison with significant trauma. Something that helped Sean make his time in prison more bearable was studying law. But this didn't come naturally to him. It all started when he switched his job from working in the kitchen to the library. Checking out books rather than scrubbing dirty tables seemed like a better job. And, uh, I got to the law library and, you know, for the most part, that's all I did for a couple months. I had no interest in it. Every now and then I'd get curious and I'd grab one of those big books off the shelf and I'd open it up. 
And it felt like it was written in another language. It was not accessible whatsoever. What got Sean interested in law was a Supreme Court decision that he hoped could lead to a sentence reduction. In 2000, the Supreme Court ruled that judges were wrong to hand down harsher sentences based on facts not proven to a jury or confessed in court. Sean spent two months studying the law to write an appeal for his case. The judge denied it. But this didn't really stop Sean from pursuing legal work. I started helping friends of mine in the prison system. And what I often found was defendants had received vastly longer sentences for the worst of reasons, including the fact that their lawyers had made really grave errors in the case and that that would cost their clients sometimes decades more of imprisonment. Sean soon moved from writing memos to lawyers to writing briefs. The third brief he ever wrote was an appeal to the Supreme Court on behalf of his friend, John Fellers, who had been convicted of a drug conspiracy. Sean mailed the brief and didn't think much about it until a day, months later. A friend came running and screaming out of the housing unit and had a copy of the USA Today that said the Supreme Court had granted John's case, said how likely it was that the court would grant a case with someone that did not have a lawyer, and then it quoted a couple sentences of the brief that I had pecked out on a prison typewriter. And so I knew that was a pretty big deal, even for a guy that was sitting in federal prison. That year, the Supreme Court received more than 7,200 petitions from prisoners. They agreed to review just eight of them. One was John Fellers. Seth Waxman, the lawyer assigned to work on the case, called in Sean and asked him to help with John's case. Eventually, the court reduced John's sentence by four years. And that was just the beginning of Sean's legal career inside prison. I worked on another case that I was granted by the Supreme Court a couple years later. I won a case in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then I started winning cases kind of all over the place, to the point where by the end of my time in prison, I had, at any one point, 10 to 20 cases ongoing. And so I was basically operating a law firm from my prison cell. But it was all for people that couldn't afford a good lawyer and didn't have any other recourse. So I was not the best lawyer because I was not a lawyer, but I was the best that they could get at the time. Like Sean's friends in prison, thousands of people in the United States get longer sentences simply because they don't have the money to post bail or hire a good lawyer. When we require people to post bail in order to be released pretrial, what that means is that poor people are more likely to be held in jail while they adjudicate their case. That's Dr. Ghanoush again. The research is clear that that makes people more likely to accept disadvantageous plea offers that are likely to include some period of incarceration. Whereas if you're not being held pretrial, you're able to negotiate for a better offer in your plea deal. So that disproportionately disadvantages low-income people and people of color are disproportionately low-income. And so they're likely to be affected by that more. Similarly, in many places, people know that the public defender is not going to be able to offer them a lot of attention and customized support. And that results in worse outcomes for them compared to if they were wealthier and could hire a private attorney that could really dedicate a lot of time and resources to their case. Sean was never able to help his own case. He spent over a decade in prison before being released in 2009. 
Just two weeks after his release, he proposed to an old friend that he had maintained a relationship with while in prison. They had a son shortly after they got married. On top of having to readjust to life outside of prison, Sean struggled financially. He owed $175,000 in restitution. Luckily, he managed to land a job at a law firm. When I was hired at Cockle Legal Brace, which is this firm that helps lawyers all over the country file briefs to the Supreme Court, I told them, hey, can we not tell everybody else about my background? Let them get to know me for a month or two, and then let's tell them. And they agreed, but I could not hide the fact that I was computer illiterate from my colleagues there. And so I didn't want to have to lie, and we had to tell people. Um, I struggled with conflict, and the women at Cockle and my wife had to sand down a lot of rough edges on me that first year or two out of prison. And I just had a lot of anxiety because of the amount of change and had lots of nightmares about bad things I'd seen and bad things that had happened in prison. And it was just a real struggle to get on my feet and get some stability those first couple of years. Sean was lucky to have the means to get back on his feet, but that isn't the reality for most of the prison population. The recidivism rate in the United States is 40%. That means that four in 10 incarcerated people will return to prison within three years of release. I learned more about crime and how to commit crimes in prison than I ever thought of before going to prison. And the great irony of our American criminal justice system is a lot of times the longer someone spends in corrections, the least likely they are to come out and be corrected. And it's not a surprise why that's so. I mean, prison... The first thing it takes from you is empathy because it's so horrible that you have very little empathy for anyone. And, you know, your social skills deteriorate. When I got out after 10 and a half years of prison, I talked like a guy who had done 10 and a half years in prison. Conflict resolution is not something that's taught in prison. If somebody yells and gets up in your face, you yell louder. They throw a punch, you throw too. Because if you don't, and you let people run roughshod over you, your life can become even worse in the prison setting. And so, you know, we set people up in prison to learn all of the wrong things when what we should be teaching people, not just, you know, the things like job skills and how to get out and not commit a new offense, but, you know, it would have been great to have someone teach me how to be a better spouse, how to be a better parent, how to be a better citizen while I was in prison. And I learned none of those things. I spoke to Dr. Anahita Mahadevi, a professor at the Long Beach City College, to better understand the reality of people who come out of prison. Dr. Mahadevi founded an organization for formerly incarcerated students. I personally feel like we need to change the name for the American system and call it the criminal injustice system. Because when you hear the criminal justice system, the words mean that there is a system in place to make things better, that has a goal of rehabilitation, has the goal of the well-being of the human beings and the fellow citizens. But this is not the reality that Dr. Mahdavi witnessed when working with formerly incarcerated students. From the minute they were stamped by being a criminal in America and now have felonies, their lives literally were upside down not because of the impacts of the drugs that they were using, not because of the impacts of whatever behavior they had or crimes that they committed, but because of the system itself. 
So when you are a felon in America, you cannot get a lot of federal grants as a student. You cannot have uh, secure housing. You cannot get jobs. So I had these students that would finish the program with great grades, A-plus students, getting involved in many leadership activities. And now they are in practical classes and they need internships and they want to get hired and the felonies come back to the picture. So it's literally not a system to rehabilitate you because no matter how long you go through your schooling, no matter how much you try to give back to society, reinvent your life, get these degrees, you're still in applications have to check mark yes if they ask you, have you had a felony in the past? So the criminality in America is a scarlet letter that follows you for the rest of your life. That felony becomes a scarlet letter. And a lot of times I saw my brilliant and beautiful students to be victims of recidivism, not because they necessarily were not good students, successful or great interns, It's because no matter where they go and what they did, they hit this cement wall. That's the impact that I believe has ruined their lives, not necessarily the pity crimes and nonviolent crimes that they had. Similarly, Sean witnessed the struggle of his formerly incarcerated friends. Most of the people I was getting out with really struggled to find work. And because a bunch of them had served really long sentences, They had no community left to come home to. They may have had one family member and most of their friends had gone by the wayside. And so community is so important for reentry. You know, if someone's living on the knife's edge, paycheck to paycheck, and they lose their job for some reason, and they have no community, no family or friends to turn to, that's a lot of times when they're put to the choice of homelessness or crime. And that's why we can't let people get to that point and we need interventions to make sure that they're not put to that choice. But I was lucky in that, you know, I had a spouse who was very supportive. I had a reference letter from Seth Waxman, this amazing lawyer that helped me get a job. And I just had things that other people did not. But had I not had those things, I don't know what would have happened. I'd love to be able to sit here and tell you that I would not have recidivated and gone back, but I don't think I can say that with any certainty. For this reason, advocates like Dr. Randnoush believe that we should reallocate resources to truly support the rehabilitation of people inside and outside of prisons. Sean was telling us how he wished he learned, you know, things that help you get out of prison and live a productive life. Where do I live? How do I open a bank? All the things for people, especially that got locked up in their younger ages. But the argument oftentimes against that is it's too expensive. It costs too much money. Can you speak to the cost of not investing into prisons as a place for rehabilitation? What is the cost of that on our society? Sure. I mean, financially, the cost of holding someone in prison is on average $30,000 a year, right? And so we have to think about during the time of incarceration, what are we going to do with them? Are they just being warehoused? What we know is that if they're just being warehoused and they're not given tools to succeed, they're more likely to come back into prison. So I think that it's really important to emphasize that incarceration and mass incarceration is very costly. 
But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also recognize that we should use it as a last resort incarceration. So really rethink how many people are we sending there and how long are we keeping them there? You know, really very seriously asking those questions would help to bring about a lot of savings, especially if we can close down prisons. And so those savings would partly need to be reinvested in ways that help to get people back on their feet, help to prevent crime from happening in the first place. So different rehabilitation programs and vocational training programs, for example. I think another one to consider is a lot of people that get incarcerated come in with a substance use problem. A lot of them do not get access to effective drug treatment while they're incarcerated. When we incarcerate people like that who have a substance use problem and we don't help them to get treatment for that substance use problem. That results in a very high overdose rate when people are released. And then the other thing is that they're likely to commit another offense in order to be able to sustain their drug use problem. However, if we are to significantly reduce the prison population, we shouldn't only focus on people with drug offenses who account for just under 20% of the prison population. Dr. Rennouche invites us to reconsider the length of sentences for people like Sean, who committed violent crimes. Half of the prison population falls into this category. There's a lot of evidence that shows that even among people that have committed the most serious crimes that we can consider, they have some of the lowest recidivism rates. That has partly to do with the aging process. People generally commit crime in their late teens and early 20s. That's when a lot of criminal offending happens. As people get older, even those individuals that committed crimes as teenagers and late adolescents, as they are more exposed to the experiences of getting employed, entering a relationship, having children, maturing neurologically, psychologically, emotionally, all of those things move people away from criminal activity. And many people, even if they're incarcerated, experience that maturing process and find ways to contribute to the prison community while they're incarcerated. This is an experience familiar to Sean. I was like a lot of young men in their teens and early 20s. I was reckless. I was impulsive. I didn't think about the consequences of my actions on myself. So it was very easy to forget about the consequences of my actions on other people. I did not think about long-term goals, you know, and the social science backs all this up, which says that, you know, young men particularly, their brains mature at a slower rate than women's do. I, I bet I don't have to convince any woman listening to this to know intuitively what the social science says about that. And, you know, the social science says eventually young men will grow out of some of these things. And, you know, when I went to prison, everybody asked, well, how did you get rehabilitated? And a lot of it was I just grew out of the foolishness and the impulsiveness and the recklessness of my teens and early 20s. So a lot of our criminal justice policies do not match up well with how the brains of young men work. Um, I should add now that, you know, Judge Cuff and I are friends. And that Judge Cuff later wrote when I got out of prison and was going off to clerk for a federal judge that, and these are his words, not mine, what Sean shown me is that my sentencing instincts suck and that I was wrong about Sean from the beginning. And then he said, you know, I, now I worry about how many other people I was wrong about. And that's why I tell people in the system that it's a very difficult job for judges to try and predict. That's why we shouldn't make a decision about somebody when they're 20 years old and assume that's going to be the same person 10, 15 years down the road. 
Sean is a great example of how people can change and how people should not be defined by the crimes they commit. After his time in prison, Sean went on to get a bachelor's degree and then completed law school. He is now a professor at Georgetown University Law Center and is an avid advocate for a more fair criminal justice system. I felt compelled to go into this work. It's weird sometimes feeling like you're always flying the former prisoner flag and that's how people view you. You know, at some point I just want to be known as a good lawyer and a law professor. But, you know, I feel compelled to explain to people the problems with the criminal justice system. And I tell people, you know, my goal is to make it better for everyone, more fair, more equitable and more effective. And that should be something that everybody can get behind. I committed a violent crime, but I am not a violent criminal. People often make really horrific mistakes, but that doesn't mean they're going to be horrific people forever. While prison reform is a heavily politicized conversation in many parts of the world, we hope that this episode helped spark the curiosity into the prison industrial complex, rehabilitation, and how we as a society treat people that we perceive to be criminal. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. First, we challenge you to change your perceptions. Perceptions that we form about crime and criminals internally shape the society in which we live. Second, lobby your politicians, leaders, and universities to be more humane in their decisions on incarceration, including increasing programming to rehabilitate people inside of prisons and supporting people upon their release. Third, learn more about prison reform, incarceration, and ending unnecessary life sentences. Use the educational toolkits that we've prepared on our website, host a teach-in, share it with your friends, colleagues, and community. Knowledge is power and you have the power to inspire real change. If you'd like to hear more empowering stories from Finding Humanity or to learn more about this episode, visit our website at findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Your ratings and reviews help Finding Humanity reach new audiences, so we thank you for your support. For more opportunities to engage with us, follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletter. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. For this episode, I'd like to thank Professor Sean Hopwood, Dr. Nazgul Ghandanoush, and Dr. Anahita Mahdavi. Our co-executive producers are Camille Lorente and Hazami Bermada. Associate producers are Fernanda Oriegas and Tani Jaraprasok. Policy and background research by Carolina Mindica and Tani Jaraprasok. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. 
I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.